Get your Bibles and open to Psalm 17. Psalm 17, as Jeff said, this is going to wrap up today our series of Summer in the Psalms. And um, I didn't get an exact count, but I think we have something like maybe 80 more to go. (laughs) I don't know, something like that, Kenny, somewhere around there. So we've got a number of, oh, it's going to be a number of summers before we work our way through all of the Psalms. And I'm sure that's been our tradition, and we'll probably continue that. Uh, And also then, uh, as we wrap up today, then we're excited to announce our new series starting next Sunday. Drum roll, please. (laughs) Genesis. So we'll start in uh, the book of Genesis. So so read ahead. Look at 1 verse 1. 1 verse 1 and 2, I think. We'll have an introduction to Genesis and then begin to look at the book of beginnings, where it all began. So... So prepare your hearts and pray for the man of God as he prepares to, to start that series for us. Psalm 17, a prayer of David. This is the word of God. We believe it. And our prayer today is that God will open our hearts to understand it, to obey it, to live it. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I will call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love. O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me, they close their hearts to pity. With their mouths, they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. From men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life, you fill their womb with treasure. They're satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word again. We thank you for the time we've already spent worshiping your holy name through the singing of these songs and through the taking of communion, through the praying of prayers. Lord, we have already proclaimed your greatness and goodness, and now may we continue to do so through the preaching of your word. Lord, I pray that you would open my mouth to speak what is true and right and good of you. I would pray that you would open our hearts to hear and believe what is preached. Lord, open our wills that we may seek to obey you in all things. We commit our time to you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know about you, but I enjoy courtroom dramas. 
And there's a number of them. Some of you who are old enough probably, uh, you know, you cut your teeth on Perry Mason, right? And uh, you probably pick those up now on these uh, reruns, black and white. Perry Mason in his cool suit there, always, you know, working on that, um, the defendant. And uh, it was always amazing because he could, he could bring them usually to confess right there on the stand, right? There was Perry Mason, there was Matlock, another uh, courtroom drama. And of course, you may remember the the movie A Few Good Men, starring Tom Cruise, and that incredible scene where he's working on Jack Nicholson. And he's there saying, you know, what does he want? What does he want? What do you want from me, right? What do you want? And what does he say? I want the truth, you know, and Jack Nicholson demands, you know, goes back to him, you can't handle it, you know, big long speech there. The truth, right? We want the truth. Why is it that we love courtroom dramas? Why do we love these kinds of TV shows and movies? I think it's because they're all about one thing. They're all about justice. Justice. And that is what is at the core of Psalm 17. The psalmist David stands in a courtroom and he demands justice. But this is no ordinary courtroom. It's it's no earthly courtroom. It's no ordinary judge or earthly judge. No, he stands in the courtroom of God Most High, the creator of heaven and earth, the sustainer of all creation, the supreme judge of all matters of righteousness and justice. He stands before Yahweh, Jehovah God. And just as an accused in a courtroom today makes his plea, David pleads to the Lord, and these pleas come in three forms. First, his first plea, hear and answer me. His second, keep and protect me. His third, rise and deliver me. My prayer today to our God, my plea to him is that these would be our pleas as well before him as we work through this psalm together. To give some context, Psalm 17 comes in the Psalter prior to Psalm 18. It's kind of obvious, isn't it? but which in light of the superscription of Psalm 18 mentions David being delivered from King Saul and his enemies, then it's reasonable to read Psalm 17 in light of that knowledge. Psalm 17 should be read against the backdrop of David's perseverance through Saul's persecution narrated in 1 Samuel. So flip over for a minute, look at Psalm 18, and let's just read the superscription in the first few verses here. Psalm 18 superscription says this, To the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the, word, uh, to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, and look at what he says in his prayer in Psalm 18. We'll look at the first few verses. I, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord to my God. I cried for help. From his temple, 
He heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. I believe Psalm 17 is that cry. Psalm 18 is him praising God for the response to the cry. Psalm 17 is the pleading before a just and righteous God to save his servant, to save his anointed one. So let's begin. Number one, our first plea we hear is, hear and answer me. And that's verses 1 through 7. Let's look at that again. Listen again. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. You have, you have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you have found nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I will call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. He starts this section by saying, Hear a just cause. O Lord, attend to my cry. Spurgeon says this in his Treasury of David about this section. He says, He that has the worst cause makes the most, the, the most noise. He that has the worst cause makes the most noise. Hence, the oppressed soul is apprehensive that its voice may be drowned and therefore pleads in this one verse for a hearing no less than three times. The troubled heart craves for the ear of the great judge, persuaded that with him to hear is to redress. If our God could not or would not hear us, our state would be deplorable indeed. And yet some professors set such small store by the mercy seat that God does not hear them for the simple reason that they neglect to plead. You hear what Spurgeon is saying? God is ready. God is willing. God is listening to his beloved. But some people aren't crying out. The, the, the more the, the challenge, the greater the trouble, the, the greater the anxiety, the, the greater my cry should be. If I stub my toe, I may just say, ouch, right? But if a bad guy pulls a gun on me, I'm going to say, help! I'm not going to just stand around. I'm going to cry out to God for help. And David looks upon his situation and sees his enemies rising up against him and making accusations uh, against the anointed. And he cries out. He asks this righteous judge, the judge of the universe, to hear his cause. O Lord, attend to my cry. David cries out to the Lord. He makes his petition known by his cry. Like a baby that cries for her mother, she knows that no one else will satisfy. It's great that we, we just sang that about God, God himself. No one else will satisfy. And, and sometimes you've been around children, right? And you think, oh, I'm going to help out, right? And my own pride, oh, I'm, I'm really good with kids, right? I work with kindergartners all the way up to fifth grade. I'm so good. And the kids, yeah! And I go, oh, oh, oh. And, you know, and you take the baby, and the baby just looks at you and, and turns around, yeah! you know, and it gets worse. You know, it's okay, it's okay, right? No, I'm crying. I am crying out. David cries to his God, knowing that it is God alone that will bring any satisfaction. Only God himself can meet David's greatest need. Only the judge of the universe can hear his case and declare a righteous verdict. 
David says, give ear to my prayer from lips of deceit. One writer said this, David buttresses his appeal with the, with, with the de declaration that it does not come from deceitful lips. He is not redefining righteousness. He's not looking for legal loopholes. He's not misrepresenting his opponents or opposing those in the right. He speaks the truth in honesty. It's important for us to realize that David here is not claiming total perfection. We know from his life and we know from our own human experience that he is a sinner. And so are we. But here he speaks openly and plainly and honestly before the Lord. Lord, he says, in this situation that I find myself now, dealing with King Saul most probably, I have acted righteously. James Hamilton in his commentary writes this, David claims neither entire perfection nor perfect obedience. He can, however, maintain that he did nothing subversive to Saul's kingship. He did nothing violent to bring about Saul's demise, and he did nothing malicious to the survivor of Saul's house. On those fronts, David was righteous, making all of Saul's persecution of David wicked and any accusations leveled against David after Saul's death false. Let's look at one great example. Turn with me over to 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel chapter 24. We'll look at the chapter entirely, and, and, and you'll see exactly where we're going here. It's just such a, a perfect example of what David is crying out here to his God. Starting with verse 1, When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rock. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. I mean, it's, it's a great, I mean, this is like out of a movie, right? It's ironic. Uh, David and his men are hiding in the back of this cave. Let's hide in here. And Saul doesn't realize they're in there, and he's like, I've got to go, and he's, I'm going into this cave. And he goes back in the cave, and there's David and his men hiding back in the darkness. If you've been in a cave, you can understand, right? We recently were in a cave in Texas. It's very dark in there. The lights are out. He goes in there, and here's what happened. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you. <laughs> right? You can imagine them whispering to him, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. But I mean, you see how his own conscience, how sensitive David is toward his, 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 his position, who he is and who the king is, Saul. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, 
David bowed his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and I did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt, uh, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my, my, but my, but my, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver my hand, deliver me from your hand. As David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, and in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul, and Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. What a perfect and amazing example of exactly what David is praying here. David acts righteously uh, before the anointed king of Israel at this time. Verse t- uh, back to Psalm uh, 17, look at verse 2. He says, From your presence let my vindication come. As he prays to, the God, to, to God, let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. David will not bring about his own vindication. He will not seek revenge. His justice, uh, true justice, he understands, must come from the just one. He appeals to God who is omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent, the God who never sleeps and who knows all our thoughts and actions. There may have been times in your life when you've been visited by this same God as well. I know there are times when I, it was, I lay my head on my pillow. I'll lay there and I begin to pray or think through the day. And I remember, uh, I may have told this before, but years ago I was laying there and I'd had a, a great weekend and maybe a good Sunday, but I can remember thinking, I was pretty proud of myself. And I was thinking, you know, I mean, God's pretty, pretty blessed to have me on his side. I'm a pretty good guy. You know, I just, I just was thinking about my own righteousness and I was thinking about what a wonderful person I am. And, and suddenly a thought comes to me right there and I, a memory from, from, from way back when I was probably four or five years old at my grandmother's daycare center. And I'm thinking about, you know, that, that, that little boy, Kevin, who's pure as the driven snow. And the thought comes to me and reminds me of a time when a little girl crawled inside this big 
a tunnel, like a barrel that we had there that you could play in. And she crawled inside of it, this big metal barrel, you could, like a little tunnel. And I found a big rock. And I went and I got on top of the barrel and I started banging it, you know, gleefully. Bang, bang, bang. She's inside there. I'm thinking, this has got to drive her crazy, right? I'm just banging this thing. And I'm thinking this as I'm laying in bed. And this little kid comes up and yells up at me, hey, kid. And I'm ding, 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 ding. This has got to be really bothering her. He says, hey, kid, she's deaf. And my heart sank. So I thought, what's the fun in this? I'm not tormenting her at all. I had not had that memory, I don't think, since I had done it. And God brought that memory to me in the night. And I was ashamed. I was embarrassed. I was humbled before a great and mighty God as he reminded me, yeah, I'm pretty blessed to have you on my team. (laughs) Right? You're not all that. You're not all that. David prays openly to the Lord. And he says, in this situation, Lord, in this situation, I know that I'm a sinner. But in this situation, regarding the king, regarding Saul, regarding the accusations against me, I am, I am righteous. I am righteous. 1 Peter 1, 6-7 talks about the way the Lord tests us even as Christians. He says, in this you rejoice. As as Peter is encouraging these these exiles, those who are pilgrims and strangers in the land, those people who are us as well, in this you rejoice, though though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God himself is the great tester. God himself tests and knows and sees. And David, of course, is talking about in the night. In the night, those places that are hidden, those places that are dark, in the darkest parts of our soul, that is when God can come and see. His eyes are seeing through the darkness. To test us. Well, David continues. He says, I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. I I make myself a a promise, I, I intention, I make a resolve that I will not transgress with my mouth. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. Uh, My feet have not slipped. I will call upon you. You will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my words. And then he prays this, and really it's a prayer for us. David says, Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. David's prayer for himself, his prayer for us as well, and it should be our prayer as well. Wonderfully, Lord, show your steadfast love. Show us your steadfast love, O God. For those who seek refuge from their adversaries, that's us. As we look at the culture around us getting darker daily, it seems to be, that we cry out to him and we say, God, show your steadfast love to us. Lord, we seek refuge in you from all of our adversaries. Well, that's his first plea here 
and answer me. His second plea, number two, keep and protect me. Look at verse 8 through 12. David continues. He says, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me, they close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They have set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion, eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. The first part of that section, he says, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says about that section. He says, No part of the body is more precious, more tender, and more carefully guarded than the eye. And of the eye, no portion more peculiarly uh, to be protected than the central apple, the pupil, or as in the Hebrew it's called, the daughter of the eye. The all-wise creator has placed the eye in a well-protected position. It stands surrounded by projecting, uh, projecting bones like Jerusalem encircled by mountains. Moreover, its great author has surrounded it with many tunics of inward covering besides the hedge of the eyebrows, the curtain of the eyelids, and the fence of the eyelashes. In addition to this, he has given to every man so high a value for his eye and so quick an apprehension of danger that no member of the body is more carefully and faithfully cared for than the organ of sight. Thus, Lord, keep thou me, for I trust I am one with Jesus and so a member of his mystical body. David says, keep me as the apple of your eye. I mean, seriously, I mean, anytime someone, you can't help it. Those, those reflexes are so, God has designed us in such an incredible way that something flies at you, a, a mosquito comes towards you, a, a stick or a ball or whatever comes at you and you quickly, bam, your, your eyes close immediately. It's amazing. I, I recently started taking up and uh, unless I get um, you know, saved from this uh, stuff that Hayden and I are into here, we're doing airsoft. And uh, I have the, you can sh I'll tell you, I'll show you later, I have the, the wounds to prove it. <laughs> That's a smart thing to do, isn't it? Here, let me shoot you with this thing. Let, I heard someone one time say they shouldn't call it airsoft, they should call it welt maker. You know, air, there's nothing soft about it. <laughs> it hurts. <laughs> and so, but when you go in there, right, they have all these things. You gotta, you gotta make sure your, you know, your, your, your uh, safety is on. Make sure this, this sock is on the end of the barrel. Make sure your gun is pointed at the floor. Do not walk into this area unless you have a mask. You've got this serious mask on, right? And you've got a helmet. I wear a helmet, and I wear a long jacket because it hurts when someone shoots you with a little plastic BB going, you know, a million miles an hour. And as I was playing. The other day, I come around this thing, and I'm being, you know, dun, 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 dun. You know, I'm all cool, man. Look at, look at, I'm the oldest guy there, of course, too, you know, which I appreciate. They only, they always call me either sir or boss, which you may do the same, right? And so I come around the corner with my gun drawn, and as I step around, I'm, this guy on my same team, he just reacts, and with, from two feet, pow, and it just, and it goes right toward my mask, and it shows, it, it bounces off of my goggles, and it was so violent, my reaction. It wasn't me thinking. I didn't think, oh, my goodness, I'm being shot in the eye with a BB. What should I do? I don't know. Maybe I should blink. Maybe I should turn my head. I mean, just immediately, your body, boom, it just reacts, right? And, of course, it bounces off of my security there, my goggles. David says, keep me as the apple 
of your eye in the same way that he's designed our eyes to be protected from anything that would intrude, from anything that would attack, from anything that would go in and harm us. He's saying, Lord, treat me as the, as the pupil of your eye. Protect me with your divine reflexes. Think about Christ's reflexes. Think about God's reflexes. If our human reflexes are so fast, what is an omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God's reflexes like? David appeals to his God to keep him, to keep him. And then he says also this, hide me, keep me and protect me. He says, hide me in the shadow of your wings. Like the chick of a tiny, uh, like the chick or a, or a tiny bird that is protected from danger by the wings of its mother. David longs to be, to be drawn in and protected by the Lord God. Listen to this refrain throughout the psalm. Psalm 36, 7. How precious is your steadfast love, O Lord. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 57, 1. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a mitkam of David, when he fled from Saul in the cave. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Psalm 63, 7. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. The heart of this cry comes out from Jesus himself in Matthew 23, 37, as he, as he, as he laments over Jerusalem. And he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often have I gathered your how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. But God has, hasn't he? For those of us who have put our hope and trust in him, he has gathered us to himself. Under the shadow of his wings, he he pulls us close, and those wings surround and protect, but also give warmth and security to us as well. And this is what David asked, Lord, please keep me. Please protect me. Draw me under your protective wings and hold me. Why? Why does he need uh, for God to keep and protect him? It's simple, because of his enemies. Look at verse 9. Protect him and keep him from what? From the wicked who do me violence. My deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have, no surra- they have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He's like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. The enemies of the violent, the, the enemies of the righteous here are, 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 are violent. They are deadly. They are merciless. They are proud. They are ubiquitous. They are ambitious. They are scheming. And David, Hamilton says in his commentary, has likened his enemies to prowling lions seeking whom they may devour. Their lust for blood and lurking methods do not image forth the character and likeness of God. These men are beastly, not manly. They are beastly, not manly. They are killer cats on the hunt, not noble men seeking truth, goodness, and beauty. You want to see a good visual representation of this? Watch one of the protests of the LGBTQ plus whatever crowd. Spitting, yelling, screaming. Profanities are those who would say, I want to protect my child. I don't want you to groom my child. 
I don't want you to suck my child into your sinful lifestyle and watch and see the hatred and the vileness, the maliciousness that comes out of their faces. It's scary. But that's what David sees. He sees his enemies surrounding him and speaking arrogantly. Their, their, their pride just speaks out because, because they're the masters of their own lips, as we heard from, from Psalm uh, earlier this week. They are proud. They're ubiquitous. They surround, they surround him. They're ambitious. They're, 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 they're scheming. They're plotting. And so David says, I need, I need help. We sing in the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. We should reflect on those great words from Martin Luther. And remember that, yes, we face an ancient powerful, intelligent being who hates God, who hates Jesus Christ and his people. On earth is not his equal. And who are we to start strutting about thinking, I can walk into this or I can walk into that? Like some silly adolescent thinking he can go and interview a vampire, walk into the lair of a lion. A while back, my family was in Oklahoma, and we had some, uh, my brother, who was a pastor at that time there, had a, um, a friend at his church who had a, a big cat rescue pound. I meant, they would rescue people who had big cats, <laughs> and they'd keep them in this, this place in Oklahoma. And they said, you want to come and see some big cats? And we said, sure, like, how big, this big? No, really big. And it was the closest we've ever been to a lion. They had like a barbed wire fence. I mean, it's all safe, basically, I think. I mean, don't <laughs> stick your finger in there. But So we go in there, and, and we're like, and they go, okay, we can go up to this big tiger. You want to let it lick you? <laughs> we're like, what? They go, yeah, just, just put your hand, you know, up here like this, and the tiger would lick <laughs> through the barb, through, not barbed wire, through the uh, chain link fence, lick you. And then, and then uh, and it was like just the most crazy, amazing, scary thing. Then they took us to see this other lion. They said, she doesn't like anybody. The moment you would get next to this lion, you would just hear this, and then this deep, deep, guttural roar coming out, you know, scary, horrifying. This is what David likens his enemies to. That's what God himself likens his enemy in scriptures to. Satan himself is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. On earth is not his equal. We must realize the power, the presence, the strength of our enemy. And we must never, never, never in our pride and arrogance try to go up against him on our own power, in our own strength. Hear me now. You are weak and frail. He can snap you like a twig. You do what our friend David does. You cry out to God. And you say, God, help me. God, help me. This is too hard. This is too long. This is too great. This is too tempting. 
This is too tasty. I can't do it on my own. I need you. I need you. Every hour we sing that song, don't we? I need you. Every hour I need you. Luther goes on and says this, Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is he. Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of the Sabbath is his name. From age to age the same. And he must win the battle. The battle is the Lord's brother. The battle is the Lord's sister. Cry out to him like his servant David. Cry out to him. His third plea, number three, his third plea is this. Rise and deliver me. Rise and deliver me. Verse 13 through 15. Arise, O Lord. Confront him. Subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children. They leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. David now calls on the Lord to move from defense to offense. He pleads with the Lord to arise. There's some real boldness here. I, 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 I tremble in, in some ways to, to encourage us even to pray this, but it's in Scripture, and so I think that we should. That David says almost a command, Arise, O Lord. Help me, O God. Get up. Help. Help. Deliver me. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. In Deuteronomy 7.10, Moses declared that Yahweh would not be slack toward the one who hates him, but would repay him to his face. Arise, O Lord, Spurgeon says again. Can you tell where I spent the week? Spurgeon says, the more furious the attack, the more fervent the psalmist prayer. The more furious the attack, the more fervent the psalmist prayer. His eye rests singly upon the Almighty, and he feels that God has but to rise from the seat of his patience, and the work will be performed at once. Let the, let the lion spring upon us. If Jehovah steps between, uh, between us, we need no better defense. When God meets our foe face to face in battle, the conflict will soon be over. When God meets our foe face to face, the conflict will soon be over. In many movies and, and, and TV shows, they have a, a scene usually with some little weak little kid, right? Little weak little kid or the weak lady or the, but some, some little small person and, and they're, they're standing up against, it's, it's their moment in glory. They're going to stand up against the bully. And the kid, you know, puts, it, puts out his chest and puts his arms on and says, you can't take, you know, mess with me anymore or whatever. And shakes his fist at the big bully. And the bully gets afraid and turns and, and runs. And the kid turns around to see, right, the big brother <laughs> standing behind him. That's us, right? God himself. God himself standing. He's the one who's doing the protecting. But we all, we have to just cry out and ask him to arise and help us. 
Verse 14, from, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life, you fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children. They leave their abundance to their infants. What, is the, what does this mean? It means this, the wicked live for this life. The wicked live for this life. Their God is their belly. They give no thought to God and his blessings, even though every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of heavenly lights. Children are their satisfaction, their legacy. Philippians 3.19 says, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory, they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. James Hamilton says in his commentary, The wicked, they enjoy all God's goodness. They're content to surround themselves with their children as emblems of their own posterity, whom they mean to enrich by their own prowess. Their gaze does not go to the, right, the horizon of life to ponder what awaits on the other side of the sleep of death. The, the wickedness of their, their cruel malice, which David forcefully describes, is founded on the philosophy that this life is all there is to live. They're simply proud of themselves, heaping up for themselves treasures, heaping up for themselves tre uh, children, trying to just pass on to their legacy. That's how they're going to live eternally, by having kids, giving no thought to, to God and His greatness and His goodness, giving no thought to the end of their own life, some having the bumper sticker right, I'm spending my child's inheritance, driving around in some lush car or RV. Contrasted with this, David ends the psalm this way. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. How can David end this song with such confidence? How can he end it with such confidence? For as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. David must anticipate another king, another anointed one, a son of David, whose, whose righteousness is not relative, but is completely comprehensive. One whose life was not marred by sin or deceit, one who could keep the law perfectly and appeal to God for complete and total justice when viewing his entire life. One who would stand in the place of David and take the punishment that was due him. His confidence is not in David, but in the son of David, our Messiah, our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. And that confidence can be yours as well today. You can say along with David, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. We began this sermon talking about justice. And the question then is really again this, where can we find ultimate justice? Where does David find it? Where can I find it? Where can you find it? We find it in one place and one place alone, in the cross of Christ. On the horizon of eternity stand the cross, stands the cross where justice and mercy meet. And now we can sing as we just sang before this sermon. There is one who stands, a just judge, who not only judges, but stands up and then takes our place 
and becomes the executed one. The righteous judge dies for the unjust. And justice is therefore met with our mercy. And so today I encourage you, believer, if you put your hope and trust in Christ, continue to do so. Cry out to Him. Pray. Ask God to intercede for your wife, for your son, for your daughters, for all those, for this church, for our country. Ask God to arise. Examine yourself when you lay on your bed at night and say, Lord, examine me, test me, know me. Look throughout my darkest, look in the darkest reservoirs of my soul and see if there's any wicked way in me. Test me, O God. Purpose yourself. Purpose that I will not speak ill. I will not be deceitful. I will purpose with my mouth to, to honor Christ in all things. With my thoughts, with my words, with my deeds, I will honor the Lord and I will live for Him. I will covenant before our, our great God. If you have yet to put your hope and trust in Christ, there is still hope for you. There is still hope for you. There is still hope for you. Do not walk out of here today hopeless, living a life under the wrath of God, subject to the roaring lion who tears and devours all that he sees. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for this summer of Psalms. We thank you for spending this time in the psalm book of our Savior. Lord, and we know that, that he alone can sing each of these psalms with complete and total abandon. Lord, may we, because we are found in him, do the same. We know that our righteousness is not in ourselves. It is not our own, but it is a foreign righteousness, an alien righteousness that's been imputed to us from your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for living the life that we should have lived and for dying the death that we should have died. We put our hope and trust in you again today. We love you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing another praise to our God. And uh, if you need any prayers, the elders will come forward now.